0: From the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California, I'm Eli Unger Sargon, and this is the Cut Podcast.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming out to the screening of CUT tonight. I'm Glenn Callender of the Canadian Foreskin Awareness Project. We're the group presenting it here in Vancouver. The movie's actually on a tour across North America, about 30 cities all over, the, all over Canada and the USA. This is the Vancouver stop. Um, the washrooms, if you need them, are just outside on the wall here. And uh, yeah, please stay after the, the show, because we will be having a uh, panel discussion with, with uh, the director here. This is Eliyahu Unger-Sargon, the director of CUT. All right, so we'll be having a panel discussion. So anyway, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and I don't know how much you'll enjoy it, but you will be riveted by this movie, CUT. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the post-screening discussion. Here we have a three-man panel. It'll, it'll pick panel. You up. Don't worry about it. Right here, we've, of course, got the director of CUT, Ilyahu Unger-Sargon. Mm. Woohoo. you can clap. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, don't do In the middle, we have Dr. Paul Tanari, He's an epidemiologist and is also uh, the only Canadian man who has been, actually, who has received a, pay, a, uh, a foreskin restoration that was paid for by the Canadian government, and you'll find out why. I'm sure we'll be hearing his story shortly. And finally, in the end, we have a man was actually in the credits of the movie here, Tim Hammond. He's the founder of an activist organization, No Harm, the producer of a award-winning documentary from the 90s called Whose Body, Whose Rights? Clips from which were in this movie and also currently running the Global uh, Circumcision Harm Survey out of Vancouver here, where he, uh, men around the world who have uh, you know, uh, issues with their circumcisions can uh, register what, what has happened to them and talk about it.
2: Um, I'm Tim Hammond, and uh, I just recently became a Canadian citizen two weeks ago. Uh, and uh, I moved here from the States, and I got involved in this issue in the mid-'80s because I saw the Phil Donahue show. I don't know how many of you remember that. But Marilyn Minos was interviewed on that program about a man who had had a surgical foreskin restoration, and I immediately tried to look up her number, contacted her, said, I want to know about this because sex for me as a circumcised guy was good, but if it could be better, I thought, why not? And uh, I came to this issue through restoration, um, started a restoration support group called NORM, and during the process, I got so angry. There was anger there that I didn't know was there about why I should even have to be doing this in the first place, and that it was continuing to be done to a million babies a year in the U.S. That I then set on the path of doing an activist group and um, made the video and got in touch with a lot of wonderful intactivists uh, on this issue.
3: So I'm. Uh... Dr. Paul Tanari, I'm an epidemiologist, uh, and uh, my story is an interesting one. Uh, because uh, my father died when I was five, my mother wasn't able to take care of me, and so the only option uh, for someone who had Indian blood like myself was uh, to go into a residential school, uh, and uh, they were probably a lot worse than you've even heard. Uh, the only interaction we had with the staff was always with violence, uh, and uh, we were always being shouted at and kicked around, and And uh, we were always taught, this was the Catholic Church, of course, that the greatest evil that you could possibly do was touch yourself. (laughs) Right? Anyway, so there was another boy in my dorm who didn't like me very much, so in the confessional he said that he'd seen me touch myself. Right? Which, by the way, wasn't true, but, and so one night they came and got me, and dragged me down the stairs. I, I didn't have a watch. I guess it was around midnight or something. Drag me down the stairs, down a hallway, into a room I'd never been on before. And uh, they held me down on a desk and proceeded to circumcise me the same way as you saw there with the clamp and everything. And now notice that I'm not Jewish, right? I'm Catholic. I used to be Catholic. Uh, and uh, so this is not an issue of religious freedom. Someone was imposing their religious beliefs on me because it was done by a Mohel. Right, and there was two priests holding me down. Now, have you ever wondered why they circumcise babies? Because babies can't fight back. I did. I was eight years old. Right, and I bit one priest and I kicked another one in the head. Right. Now, for my trouble, they broke my nose and broke my wrist. Uh, anyway, so anyone who says that circumcision is not painful is breaking one of the commandments Thou shall not bear false witness because it is the most painful experience I've ever had in my life. And I've had a kidney stone and I'll tell you circumcision is worse than a kidney stone and the pain lasts for weeks afterwards. And I had infections for years afterwards. Now how did this affect my sex life? Well they took off so much skin from my penis that every time I had an erection I had pain now since I didn't know any different I thought this was normal right well why do people like sex so much it's so painful right and since there was so much skin taken off when I had an erection it drew all my scrotal skin up onto the shaft which of course was hairy which is really abrasive to the vagina right so my partners hated me right they called me mister sandpaper right so of course this is not the way I was meant to be so all my life I wished I could change the situation and I'm not the sort of person to sit around and do nothing. So I made it a goal in my life to make sure that no other child went through what I went through. So from the age of 18 I tried to fight this any way I could. Not with violence, I didn't become a suicide bomber, or blow anyone up or kill anyone, no. I started with the human rights groups in Quebec, right? And I was told right to my face, nothing illegal was done to you. You know, but they broke my wrist, oh that's because you resisted. So, the people who did this were never brought to justice because nothing illegal was done. Now, this is the fact under Canadian law. Any person can circumcise a non-consenting male at any time, even if they have no experience, no knowledge, and there's no consent. This is Canadian law. No male has the right to resist or to not give consent until the age of 18.
1: And you, you ultimately got a restoration, right? Yes.
3: Okay, so at age... 46, I was researching this. I I worked on this for 35 years. I'm a very persistent person, right? And I became an expert on the issue and I'll talk about that in a little moment, but at age 46 I found a surgeon who had specialized in this. He actually started training doing hymen restorations for women who had been raped in um, Muslim society and they, they could not marry without an intact hymen So he had specialized in working with very delicate membranes, right? And so while doing this, he'd realized that he could also restore foreskins using recovered scrotal skin, right? So I volunteered to be one of the first people to go through this. And I was able to get, uh, because of my particular situation where I was assaulted in residential school and being part native, the guilt of the government was so great that they actually financed this. It cost $13,000. So I had the restoration surgery went very, very well, right? And the first thing I noticed is that the head of my penis went from being in a, 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 a calloused, rough, abrasive, external organ to being what it was meant to be, a mucous membrane. Huge sheets of callus fell off it, right? And what was left was mucous membrane. So my sensation went from zero to extraordinary, right? And then suddenly, My penis actually worked the way it should be. It was no longer a hair all over the shaft, abrading my partner. Uh, My partner had her first G-spot orgasm because the penis is designed, when the foreskin retracts, it forms a ring around the head of the penis which presses directly on the G-spot. What a coincidence! After two million years of evolution, it's no coincidence that the penis and vagina are designed to work together, not against each other, right? From the religious aspect, I've studied every aspect of this. I've witnessed over 1,500 circumcisions all over the world. Let me say the religious argument is spurious because originally circumcision consisted of removing one 1,000th of a cubit of skin. That was the order in the Talmud, one 1,000th of a cubit, which is one millimeter When Abraham circumcised himself, that's how much he removed. And for thousands of years, that's what circumcision consisted of, one one one-thousandth of a cubit. But then, men had a choice. If they wanted to go in the Olympics in ancient Greece, they had to go naked, and they were embarrassed by this missing little bit of foreskin. So what they would do is hang weights and stretch it and restore it, which was really easy when you only lost a millimeter. And the, 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 the priesthood was so upset by this that the men were making a choice for themselves that they decided to change the law given by God and make it more and more invasive, remove more and more skin. Until what is removed now is an inch, right? Which is an amputation and not a covenant with God. So that's my point, which is very important. When people say their religion depends on this, you're saying you have corrupted the word of God into your invention to prevent prevent restoration.
0: Mm. Uh, I just wanted to Mm. say one uh, one thing. Uh, I wanna Mm. just thank my co-panelists for being here. Um, Tim Hammond, I really couldn't have made the film without you. Uh, I had tried to get into a number of hospitals when I was making the film, and I was rejected from about eight separate hospitals, I think for legal reasons. Um, But I was sort of despairing because there was just no way I was gonna get uh, footage of hospital circumcisions. And I contacted Tim and and he was kind enough to allow me to use some of the clips from his film. And so I, I just want to acknowledge that and thank him for for his help because it, it was really important that b-roll I think is, is a- absolutely key to illustrating some of the points in the film and Paul uh, thank you very much for sharing your story and uh, look forward to hearing some more from you
3: just one more comment many people were invited to be the pro side of circumcision and not a single one of them showed up yes it's what does true that
1: tell I, you? I, I invited um, about eight rabbis in Vancouver mm-hmm. to participate none of them were available uh, and also the two leading circumcisers in Vancouver, Dr. Neil Pollack and uh, Dr. Daryl Abelman. I've invited both of them as well, but they were not available. It wasn't my intention for the panel to be entirely uh, anti-circumcision, but that you know, no one wanted to come and defend circumcision tonight. Now that we know who everybody here is, I will uh, take questions from the audience. You can ask one person or the entire panel. Uh, just hands up if you've got a question. Here we go.
2: My name is Merlin. I'm just curious from whoever might know... Uh, How much does a doctor get paid, or uh, or the team, for the uh, operation?
3: $300, roughly. Uh, But that's not the key component. You gotta realize you're dealing with an industry, and the foreskin is not thrown away. It is sent and sold to pharmaceutical industries, and each foreskin can create over $100,000 worth of pharmaceutical products. If you've ever used a cream, a beauty cream that contains elastin, it's made with foreskins yes and and so each foreskin is worth thousands and thousands of dollars that's where the big profit is so when you see these people arguing for maintaining circumstances like this doctor who said if I ever hear that there's something against it I'll stop bull because she is making a fortune selling foreskins all right now, um, yeah.
0: th- that woman actually is not a doctor she's a rabbi okay, um, a and uh, the, it's variable the amount that that physicians make on uh, circumcisions. Uh, it varies from, I've seen anywhere from $100 to four or $500, depending on the hospital and the insurance plans. Um, and depending on the f- kind of circumcision, you asked how, how long it takes. Uh, Mogan circumcisions are much quicker than Gomco circumcisions, although Mo- Mogan circumcisions tend, which Mogan is the one that you saw at the end of my film, and you saw it was. Probably about 45 seconds, uh, but they also tend to have higher complication rates, um, uh, partial glands, amputations, all sorts of things. That the company that makes them have act- has actually been sued into oblivion by a, a very uh, uh, courageous lawyer by the name of David Llewellyn. Um, so yeah, I I, I tend to uh, personally underemphasize uh, or. I I don't tend to put too much stock in the financial motivation behind this. I think uh, circumcision, I have many indications that circumcision is a deeply, deeply embedded cultural practice. Uh, There is profit motive, but I don't think that that's the primary motivating factor behind it. And so I I tend to focus more on the cultural uh, reasons for doing it and the sort of psychological reasons that people continue uh, doing circumcisions
1: okay do we have any other question right.
4: mine is ab- about your choice because I found that really an interesting part of the film that you know your father your father's a rabbi that's right and that you're having children or gonna have children or contemplating having children and, and what an interesting and tough and decision that is for you.
0: Oh, well thanks. Welcome to my life. Uh, yeah, I uh, I mentioned in the film that I've had a lifelong struggle with the Jewish tradition. I grew up in a very orthodox religious background, um, a family full of rabbis. Um, and um, But at a certain point I started appraising some of the uh, elements of the Jewish tradition that I found problematic in a critical light. Uh, and so, and, and again, it's not, um, you might have sensed this from watching the film. I have not thrown out my religious tradition. Um, and I can continue to maintain the kind of tension between my conscience and my liberalism and my heritage as a Jew. Um, and that's, that's sort of my way.
5: To my great embarrassment, I was born and raised as a Catholic. I can tell you when you want to leave the train and let them go and say bon voyage to all these pedophiles who are legalized to destroy life of children, you can do it. I am very proud to be neither a Jew nor a Muslim and I was very embarrassed to be a Christian, but all this is mythology. Live it.
0: Well, I I appreciate your perspective. I'll respectfully disagree with your characterization a little bit. First of all, um, I don't see the people who do this as villains. Uh, I see them actually more as victims. Um, I think we're all victims of, uh, of cultural violence. This is a, a, a very striking example of it. Um, so that's the first thing I would respectfully disagree with you on. And the, the second thing is that, um, you know, yes, it's mythology, um, but we're human beings, and we live by mythologies. Uh, and trading the Jewish mythology for uh, an enlightenment or scientific mythology, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is, is, a, is a lovely move, but it actually doesn't really get you very far because the bottom line is, you know, um, we're human beings, and we can't see the world uh, from nowhere, and we can't see the world from everywhere, so we have to see the world from our limited perspectives. Um, and there are elements, uh, as you may have guessed from watching my film, of the Jewish tradition that I'm not proud of and that I speak out against. And then there are elements of the Jewish tradition that I'm enormously proud of. Um, and uh, so I, uh, I respect uh, where you're coming from, but um, I'm, uh, I'm happy to live in the tension.
6: Well, first of all, really great work. Um, and I applaud your equanimity. <laughs> I find it difficult to you know, watch some of that. Um, so the, the question I have is, is that it took 300 years for the Catholic Church to acknowledge Copernicus. So how long do you think it's going to take for the Jewish religion to acknowledge basically the barbarism of their act here?
0: That's a good question uh, that I, ha- I don't have the answer for. I can give you a speculation. You're, um, you're closer to it. <laughs> <laughs> um... I don't think it's going to take 300 years, to be honest with you. Um, I, think, uh, I think the vast majority of Jews in the world, I was going to say American Jews, I think Jew, the vast majority of Jews in the world are not um, what I would consider observant or religious. Um, and what that tells me is uh, that, um, yeah, do, do you want
6: to? Okay, so. I have a friend who's an author. Yeah. So she's a sophisticated, erudite, right, knowledgeable woman. Right. She has a husband. One assumes he is of similar take. Yeah. They're both Jewish. Right. Their third child was a boy. Mm-hmm. And he announced to her that if they did not circumcise, she didn't want a circumcision, that if they did not circumcise their child, that would be a deal breaker. Right. Now this is a lapsed Jew, right? Sure. Or what do we call a lapsed Jew? What's a what, just a, a Jew. A
0: <laughs>
6: <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. Okay, but you know what I mean. Yeah, not, well, Ju-
0: Judaism's an ethnicity also, so they're just Jewish. Of course. But yeah.
6: Yes, so here we are with this. Sit- right. So uh, to counter your uh, point. Oh,
0: theory. sure, no, absolutely. But you know, what I would tell you is that um, I think, and this person I imagine lives in Canada or in the, New- the United States, okay. Um, I think that circumcision has become an embedded American, North American practice. Um, So when I see an unaffiliated Jew, a non-observant Jew, insisting on circumcision, um, it's not so clear to me that they're doing it for ethnic identification purposes as much as they're doing it because they're American or they're Canadian. And maybe this is sort of a rationalization. um, But, you know, when I... And the the couple in my film I thought were were wonderfully emblematic of American Jews. You know, uh, Aaron had a Christmas tree in her house growing up. And Andy... You know maybe feels a little more strongly about the ritual thing, but you know not a particularly observant I honestly believe that um, there there is a cultural shift going on right now around this issue it's It's moving at a glacial pace, um, much to the chagrin of people who have already sort of reached the conclusion that this needs to end, but it is happening, and I honestly believe that when uh the cultural shift occurs in earnest. Um, American Jews, North American Jews, um, I think even many secular Israelis are going to change their tune about this. Um, it, it, it's, we're at a point right now where it's not considered harmful. I'm talking culturally, okay? When we get to the point where it's accepted wisdom, cultural wisdom, that this is a harmful practice, um, it's going to force a non-observant Jew to really make a tough choice. And I honestly think that a lot of them are gonna break for the intactivist position. That's, that's my feeling, that's my speculation.
2: And I, I think this is an important point because I've been involved in this issue since the mid 80s. And um, this issue that most people have tried to deal with in your film, in my film, in arguments for genital integrity have been intellectual arguments. Mm-hmm. What I have learned and what studies about the parental decision-making process in the United States about circumcision have proven is that for a certain percentage of people, this is an intellectual uh, issue. Oh, the foreskin, it's normal, it's natural, I get it. But there's a large, large group of people for whom it's an emotional issue. And they don't even have to be Jewish and tied to the religious aspects of it, they just need to be tied to the fact that or the idea that this is how civilized people act. This is how we in English-speaking culture act. This is how my family acts. It's an emotional decision that defies a lot of intellectual approach to it. And I just wanted to make one comment about your um, question about the the financial aspect of it. Um, One of our projects in No Harm in the 90s was to have men write to their insurance companies and say, why are you paying for this? And we got some very frank letters back from them saying, we know this is not medically necessary. We know this was a social, is a social custom. But from a consumer satisfaction standpoint, we continue to pay for this. Meaning, they don't want to lose money. They're not you know, going out and buying private jets with this money. But they don't want to lose money. And this holds true for the doctors, too. They don't want to lose money by refusing to do circumcision because then they will lose the patient for the next 8, 10, 12 years. So there is a financial motivation. It's not primary, but it is one of the pillars on which this whole thing rests in addition to the emotional attachment to it. Thank you.
7: Hi, I
1: just wanted to say thank you very much for the film and for the panel and hearing a male's perspective on circumcision. I have two questions. One is, during your research for the film, did you come across information in regards to rites of passage ceremonies outside of Judaism? So I'm talking with Islam or on on the continent, the various countries in Africa that do practice routine circumcision. And and my second question is, did you come across any research as to the uh, psychological and emotional effects of circumcision? not just the physical.
0: Right. Okay, so uh, to the first question about um, uh, rites of passage, uh, circumcision is a rite of passage. Um, Yeah, of course. I came across a lot of that information, and I made a very uh, um, intentional decision to leave Muslim circumcision out, to leave female genital cutting practices out, to leave African genital cutting uh, practices, male genital cutting practices is a massive topic. Um, It it goes uh, from everything from the you know the Philippine dorsal slit to sub incision in uh, Aboriginal Australia and it's a huge subject. Um, I don't feel for reasons of cultural sensitivity comfortable speaking to those practices. When I started this film I should mention I didn't know where I was going to end up. I was open to Uh, the information I was learning and I could have gone either way to be honest with you I was really trying to keep an open mind and allow the the information that I learned to change me Um, but I was never comfortable talking about Muslim circumcision I was never comfortable talking about African circumcision or Aboriginal cutting practices or Philippine cutting practices because quite frankly I'm an American Jew Um, and I'm I am sensitive Uh, I, I think it's it's appalling that American physicians in the American medical establishment are going over to Africa um, and sort of denigrating and uh, telling Africans not to cut their their girls and telling them to cut their boys. I just think that it's completely inappropriate. It's the worst kind of um, imperialism and I didn't want to be the person to do that in reverse. Um, So that's to that question. Now, regarding the your second question about the psychological consequences, yeah, I came across a lot of information about that, and I don't want to I don't I don't want what I'm about to say to sound like I don't take it seriously, but I knew that my film was going to be seen by a lot of people who didn't agree with my conclusion, and I find it much uh, easier to stand on um, firm empiric grounds. When I'm talking to people I don't agree with, because I can talk very easily about scientific facts like Meisner's corpuscles. Um, if I were to talk about something like alexithymia, right, or even something as um, uh, something like uh, erectile dysfunction or sexual dysfunction to an extent, I, you're not on such firm ground anymore. Um, uh, and I, I have commitments to truth um, and. To be honest, I think it's very difficult to to demonstrate, to to, to conclusively prove some of those things. There's so many confounding variables that come into play. So I, for strategic reasons, didn't deal with that in my film at all.
3: Uh, I can make a medical comment. I was the first person to study the uh, neurological effects of circumcision. We performed a circumcision in one of the first available functional MRI machines in Toronto right? And so we're talking firm scientific ground here. This is not hypothesis. And we did a baseline measurement of the infant's brain function, right? So we had a normal brain function over several minutes. Then during the circumcision and after the circumcision, we had to use obsidian because you can't use metal tools within a functional MRI because the magnetic field is so large. That was interesting. Uh, But anyway, the results were in summary, the 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 trauma was incredible. The pain centers of the brain lit up like a Christmas tree. You were mentioned Christmas trees before. Yeah, okay. And secondly, the important point is that the brain never returned to its baseline level that we've measured previously. So, in other words, there are pr- permanent changes to the brain. What the behavioral effects of those changes are, I cannot say scientifically, but I can hypothesize. But that's the important point circumcision is so painful that we have proven that it causes permanent changes to the brain. That's it.
2: And related (coughs) to that, uh, Mm. just a sort of shameless plug for my latest project is uh, Mm. if you go to circumcisionharm.org, it's a website that is the latest reincarnation of a study, uh, a harm documentation study that we attempted to do in the mid-80s with old school paper forms being mailed out. Uh, This time, it's online. It's a global survey of circumcision harm. It's only four months old, and already we have 659 responses from men, mostly from the states, documenting the physical, sexual, and psychological self-esteem impacts that they feel they have um, uh, been subjected to from the surgery. Now, this is anecdotal. It's not hard scientific evidence, but the whole point of this survey is to get enough men responding. The whole world can view the results. I've, I've got a printout of the results here. It's 65 pages long. To prod the medical community into doing more research into the long-term adverse <clears throat> consequences of this that we know from talking to circumcised men is out there.
7: Hi there. Um,
4: <clears throat> I'm, I'm very curious as to whether you would, you think that your brother would circumcise his children and how you would feel if he did.
0: <laughs> My brother um, is, uh, is, a, is a great guy. Uh, and uh, he's actually a shaman in training right now. Uh, he's completely abandoned the Jewish tradition. Um, and I've had a number of conversations with him since the, completing the film, and he's stated to me categorically that he would never, ever circumcise a child he, th- he considers it an act of uh, deep abuse. And um, from he-, he comes at it from a slightly different perspective than I do. I- I'm very um, sort of tied down to empirical data and science, and that's sort of very important to me. But uh, he looks at it from a sort of energetic, psychological perspective, uh, spiritual perspective, and he feels that, the- that doing this to a- uh, an eight-day-old baby or to a child um, is is a is a is the kind of trauma that uh, is best avoided. So he would never do it.
6: Okay. Hi,
0: my question is for Paul. Um, did you say you were involved in the MRI study? Yep. Um, so my first question is: Did you have any ethical uh, dilemmas in circumcising a child without anesthetic? And was it? Did you try to pick someone who was going to be circumcised anyway? Yeah, and my second me. question is. Uh, From what I understand, you didn't seek punitive damages in your lawsuit. And uh, if I'm wrong about that, tell me. But uh, if you didn't, why not?
3: Okay, that's a complex question. Okay, uh, medical research always treads a delicate and narrow moral path. So there's thousands of lab animals that get killed for benefiting humans, right, which I don't agree with. But I I believe that it's necessary for the greater good. Uh, I had to very, very carefully think Okay, here's a child who's going to be circumcised anyway. There was no way he wasn't going to be circumcised. The the parents were absolutely adamant. And uh, the mother, in fact, was a nurse. And uh, I said, well, if he's going to be circumcised anyway, can we use this information for medical gain? And the parents consented to have the the circumcision done in a functional MRI. So I I believe that the gain to medical research was was worth the the child being circumcised, because he was going to be circumcised anyway. Now, this this is a common dilemma, like for example, in concentration camps uh, a lot of data was obtained, for example, on how long it took a a victim to to fall into cold water before they died. This was done for pilots to know how long they would survive in the North Sea when they bailed out. Now, the ethical problem is this, should that data be used today? It's the only data that's existent on this study, because obviously you're not going to kill people today to get the data. But should you throw out the data that was obtained? These prisoners died to produce this data. So it was decided that the data should be used. So that was the grounds in which I, I it was very difficult for me because to see this child suffering, it, it was tearing me apart. But, uh, now the, the, but the, the worst was yet to come. They did not let, let us publish our results and it, everyone involved with it was threatened with being expelled from the hospital. That's the power of the circumcision industry to control what the public sees. So th- I talk about the dishonesty of medicine. W- w- Honour dies. Where interest lies. So when doctors become businessmen, where can people turn for doctors? It's very difficult to stop circumcision using moral arguments, as you've found, right? They're so deeply entrenched. Then I thought, how can you stop it? Financial pressure. If only 2% of Canadian men sought restoration surgery, as I did, the entire Medicare system would collapse. So I'm asking men who've been circumcised here and all your friends have been circumcised, contact me and I'll tell you how to do it. You have to get a letter from a psychiatrist saying you were harmed by your circumcision. You go back and then you'll get a reference to a surgeon. right? And they, since I set the precedent, they have to pay for it. right? If only 2% of circumcised men do this, they would ban circumcision because would, the whole system would collapse. It simply cannot be sustained. Hit it financially. That's the best way to kill this.
4: Okay.
5: <laughs> I'm wondering, uh, percentage-wise, obviously, every single circumcision has uh, some deformity. It it is a deformity by nature, by definition. But I'm wondering, percentage-wise, the complications that arise from it, what percentage of those children that are circumcised have severe uh, complications, and by that I mean infections, and uh, other deformities that, that arise from the procedure.
0: I I, I, I want to bring up a point about this because it's a, it's a question that often comes up. And I think, to be honest, we have to say that we have very unreliable data on this point. And the reason we have unreliable data is that uh, there, there are two reasons that I'm aware of that the data is so unreliable. Number one, hospitals typically don't list um, you know circumcision as... The, the cause of yeah. complications or of death or or any... They, they try mm. to cover up. I mean, for obvious reasons, if you're a medical practitioner and you messed up, I mean, there's going to be some, some covering up. But the, a more important uh, factor is that most of the complications actually occur after the baby is discharged from the hospital in the first week after they get home. And so it's very difficult to obtain accurate data on this point. Everything I've ever seen... Has been a guesstimate, and they're wildly variant. I mean, I'll, I'll just give you a simple example. There's a condition called meatitis, where the urinary meatus inflames um, due to infection uh, after a circumcision, and the and this is they they state this statistic without with a straight face. They say it's between eight and 32 percent. So, like, you know what I mean? It's, I, I find the data to be highly unreliable. I think it's safe to say that there's a significant number of complications. In the United States, if 1.3 million uh, boys were circumcised last year, uh, on the order of tens of thousands of them had complications, on the order of thousands had serious complications. Um, so, but to give any kind of precise figure is extremely difficult.
3: I've studied this medically and I estimate about 36% of babies have complications that either uh, chronic immediately or systemic later on or uh, acute immediately chronic later on and and you know I, I I I it was very hard to get the data as you said one of the things I did is I studied playgirl pictures right the models in there an enormous number of them have skin bridges and damage to the head of their penis, right? And they're used as models of male beauty, and yet their penises are severely damaged, right? Now, I did, I did one of the first studies trying to figure out what was the death rate among a community, like the Jewish community, right? And I estimated, uh, after many years of going to look at tombstones throughout Europe, and I had a translator to translate the Hebrew, right? The number of babies that died eight or nine days, usually connected with circumcision, right? My estimate is two million deaths in one community the Jewish community over what's for a span of time over since it started it's 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 really guess, diff-
0: it's really be- it's really tough
2: it's never been studied before the, the long term complications to men have never been studied by the medical community because men have not found their voice yet at the beginning to now uh, but nobody has been interested in the medical community as far as i know in uh, Assessing circumcised men for physical damage. Uh, Sexologists aren't looking into it for sexual damage, the damage to their relationships. We are uncovering this in the survey, um, but none of this has been looked at and studied on a formal scientific basis.
0: I'd like to add, there are are estimates and numbers flying around in... There was a recent estimate that 117 boys in the United States die every year from circumcision-related complications. I wouldn't believe any of them. Um, And I'm not saying this to to sort of suggest that there aren't boys who die from circumcision every year, but when you get down to the math, it it gets very tricky. Um, There's some fast and loose uh, sort of people are playing fast and loose with a lot of numbers, and I, I wouldn't even use I would I, I don't use numbers publicly I, I try not to I'll say something like two percent is a low estimate of complications but and that's in and of itself that's some twenty six thousand complications in the United States last year but you know when you start to to get into that territory you it. it credibility becomes a, a sort of precious commodity and, you know, you want to be absolutely clear about what we know and what we don't know and the truth of the matter is, we don't know.
2: And I, I, I think that one of the main issues that we're missing here, uh, that we're skipping over and, uh, excuse me, but I, I, I swore my allegiance to the Queen and I swore my allegiance to uphold Canadian values uh, recently and... One of those uh, things that I swore to do was to protect the rights and freedoms of other Canadians. And as far as I know, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms protects everyone in this country. And we have a law that protects the genital integrity of girls. You cannot so much as do a pinprick on the clitoris of a little girl and cause bleeding, much less cut off her foreskin or her labia. And the question, Regardless of complication rates, even if you could wave a magic wand and make the foreskin of these baby boys disappear without pain, you're depriving them of their genital integrity and you're not treating these boys the same way as you are treating a similarly situated class of citizens, namely girls.
0: And I just, just a very quick comment to add to that. You'll notice I didn't touch on complications in the film, and that's the reason. I, I don't think I think it's horrible that they occur. I think it's it's tragic every time someone suffers a serious complication from this practice. But to me, that's not the central ethical issue. It's what Tim just uh, articulated beautifully. Uh, you can have no further complications beyond the complication of removing the foreskin, and as far as I'm concerned, that in and of itself is sufficient to recommend against the practice.
1: Right. Thank you.
5: Personally, I don't think that the human race were created when, with the unwanted organs or unnecessary flesh, okay? Whomever created the human race, basically, the Jewish religion say, oh, you are a little bit stupid because you created them with, with something which does not serve them or which something which is not good for them. And I don't, think, I don't see it that way. Um, second of all, what made you think, what made you be so sure and how can you prove that it was God? that said to Abraham, you know, this is what you need to do to the son. It can be a spirit, it can be an entity, it can be a demon. How can you prove it was God?
6: Are are you asking me to defend circumcision? I didn't
5: finish that. (laughs) I didn't finish. Uh, In Israel, most of men refuse to use condoms. Okay? For women, it should be a problem. Especially when it comes to AIDS or other diseases, because they are just not sensitive enough to enjoy sex.
0: Um, I just want to be clear. Are you asking me to defend uh, ritual Jewish circumcision?
5: I'm just. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm giving a point of view. I'm just. Right. I'm just. letting people know to start to think differently. Okay. What made you think that, that God was the one who okay. told Abraham um, yeah, to do it?
0: I, I mean, I think just a, a point in response to that. Um, I think cultural practices aren't quite so simple. I don't think that um, that cultural practices uh, exist because of some single historical explanation. I don't think most Jews circumcise their boys because they think that Abraham was told to do so by God. I, I think some do. Uh, cultural practices are are things that uh, that happen for reasons that are given extemporaneously after the fact, and if you look at. Uh, Jewish history, you'll see all sorts of reasons given for circumcision. One of them is the one that you mentioned, but that doesn't really exhaust it. Um, If you look at Moses Maimonides, he says that we circumcise our our baby boys because we don't want them to enjoy sex so much so that they can focus on the more important things in life. And there have been many, many other rationales given over time. And and I think this is a truism about cultural practices. Um, They exist. We don't really know how they got started. And when they get embedded uh, in a very deep way in the way circumcision has, um, they will gather with them like a rolling snowball reasons as they go along. And I, so I, I would just caution you on, on uh, sort of assuming that it's done for some kind of historical theological reason. Lots of people have lots of I don't. I wouldn't say it has nothing to do with religion, but I wouldn't say that that's the only reason that people circumcise their sons, and I wouldn't say that that's. I would say that that's not the only reason that Jews circumcise their sons. Absolutely.
1: Thank you.
7: Um, I have two um, connected questions. Uh, one of them is uh, just um, when. I'm just curious when um, circumcisions performed in a hospital. And circumcision f- uh, performed by a rabbi. Uh, I'm just wondering if it's the same the same result. Um, I was to- I was told at one point that, that it was it was a smaller <laughs> p- amount removed by the rabbi, but I'm not sure if that's accurate. Um, and the other thing I'm just wondering. I thought it was very interesting what you mentioned that the Talmud actually. F- uh, i never heard that that, that the actual um tradition was meant to be just to remove one one thousandth of a I don't know how you Cubit. cubit. Um, and uh, I think that would be interesting to bring that, you know, for the Orthodox Jews, why don't that would be a good argument to go back to the original order of, of the covenant if they wanted to put it in that in religious terms.
0: Yeah, I mean so to the first question, um, I've actually been having some very interesting conversations with some intactivists about this recently. The question is um, are traditional, do traditional circumcisions take off less skin or are they less damaging than hospital circumcisions? And my answer to you right now is I actually honestly, uh, I think it's, it's not clear. I think that there's some very complicated three-dimensional structural things going on. Um, And I also think that there's an enormous amount of variability both in ritual and in hospital circumcision. So it's hard to give a a solid answer to that. There is a school of thought that believes that the traditional circumcision, which doesn't involve any clamping, actually takes off less erogenous tissue than something like a Gomco hospital circumcision. Um, I, I think it's not entirely clear to me that that's the case, but a case can be made for that. Um, I'm actually not, uh, my understanding of the Jewish tradition is not uh, Paul's understanding. I do not believe that there was ever a time in Jewish history where a millimeter was taken off. I know that circumcision was definitely made more radical at the the time of the Hellenic period uh, for the reason that Paul mentioned, which is that Jewish men were restoring their foreskins, and he's right, it's much easier to restore your foreskin when less is being taken off. But it was never a millimeter, it was always... um, all of the foreskin that overhung the glands, and that always ablated the ridged band. And so, when people bring up these sorts of compromised solutions, oh, let's go back to the older one, um, I, I, that to me is not a, a good solution at all. Um, I, you're still getting rid of the most sensitive part of the penis. You're still committing a human rights violation. Why not just? I, I mean, just leave it up to the individual to make a decision about how they want to have their body, when they can make that decision. So, I, I
8: that. Yeah, um, I wanted to make a comment and then I had a question. I think that on the issue of like circumcision being motivated by Jewish law, as you said, I think that anybody who's been to Israel can see the way that cultural practice mutually reinforces religious interpretation and and vice versa because I mean the religious community in Israel goes to all sorts of lengths to uh, circumvent certain rules about you know what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Like for example, Having elevators just run, you know, all the way up and down hotels and stopping at every floor so that, you know, you don't have to push a button. So I think that, th- you know, there is a value um, in tradition and community that motivates the, you know, maybe the circumcision ritual and then that, you know, value motivates uh, desire to find reasons, you know, post hoc, and then they're mutually reinforcing. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, but my question was, I was struck by how Parallel the rationalization of circumcision was to the way that people rationalize uh, the slaughter of animals or like inflicting pain or using animals, um, in, in the sense that the baby doesn't have a language and it can't talk, and so there is this assumption. I saw it several in several places in your film that. Um, on the one hand, you know, they will cry at anything. You take their diaper off. They're just crying for no reason. And then on the other hand, um, there's no reason to belie- believe they, ha- they f- can feel any pain. Like, you know, they're just like an 8 year old child. Like, how can they feel any pain? There's this contradictory um, but, you know, um, strong narrative that, that animals or beings without language don't experience pain. And I was just wondering if, if you saw that. Paragraph. Yeah,
0: no, I think that's a really good observation. Um, to your first point also, it's a little, you know, the issue of the Sabbath elevators in Israel, it's a little more complicated because it, in Israel in general, things are a little more complicated because there's no separation of church and state. Um, and the, so there are all sorts of bizarre things that, that go on in terms of, you know, buses not running on Sabbath and shops being forced to close on Sabbath and not being able to raise pork on the land, so they build a concrete platform to raise, I mean, there's all sorts of weird stuff that goes on around that. Um, but to your point about uh, animals and babies, yeah, no, I think that there is a, an, an interesting and important parallel there. Um, I'm, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're reminding me of uh, Peter Singer's uh, famous words that the question is not whether or not uh, something can think, but whether or not they can suffer.
3: Another point I'd like to make here is that cultures change. And I don't think any cultures change as much as Jewish culture has in 5,000 years. For example, they went from a religion re- worshipping at a central temple in Jerusalem. right? Then when that temple was destroyed and they were scattered all over the Roman Empire, they then began worshipping at local synagogues. right? So their culture changed. right? And then they ha- the religion depended on the sacrifice of animals for thousands of years. And that ended. Right? When that, that was seem unethical. Right? So cultures change all the time. They're not set in stone. Right? And we're saying here that this culture can, can change mm-hmm. to something like the, the Bris Shalom, is a, it yeah. has, has a, a nice ceremony and people are taking part as a family. And instead of cutting the child, you cut a cloth and you say the prayer. Right? All the symbolism is there. The, the, the covenant is there. Right? And without hurting the child. Right? And so this is what we're. We're saying. We just...
2: and, and I would like to just piggyback on that and say that as um, an American who's had a lot of experience with the American Jewish community being at the forefront of many, many civil and human rights issues in the United States, um, I have to plead ignorance about Jewish history in Canada at this point, but in the United States, that's my experience. And I'm fully confident that when the Jewish community uh, begins more and more to adopt the the frame of reference that this is a human rights issue, this is a genital integrity issue, that uh, more and more Jews will begin to adopt a British Shalom and uh, in many ways that will free up non-Jews to begin to question the practice even more, especially people who are so-called Christian who believe it's their obligation to circumcise just because Jesus was a Jew. Um, so I'm really confident in the Jewish community getting it and being in the vanguard of social change on this
0: issue. Yeah, I'd add that um, uh, Jews are disproportionately represented among intactivists. Um, I had a we had a screening in Chicago, and Ron Lau, who who's featured in the film, was there. Um, the guy who invented the TLC Tugger, the restoration device, and he uh, publicly shared with us that at every every time he goes to an intactivist event, whether it's a symposium or you know, a baby fair, whatever, wherever there's intactivists, he always asks for a show of hands to see how many Jews there are in the crowd, and he said both in the UK and in the United States, it's always uh, something like 11%. Now, Jews are between 1.8 and 2% of the population in the United States, so there's already a disproportionate number of
2: intactivists who are Jews. And they're 4% of our survey. So-
3: well, there you go. And, and they- I, wanted, I wanted to stress, it's very important, this is a very important point, If you are an intactivist, you are not anti-Semitic. It's just like if you are anti-foot-binding, you're not anti-Chinese. If you're anti-honor killings, you're not anti-Muslim, right?
0: I'd say if you're an intactivist, you're not necessarily (laughs) (laughs) anti-Semitic.
7: Okay, quick question. One is, why is it eight to nine days for um, the circumcision? And the second question was, um, whether you are going to or are interested, or what you th- your thoughts on on the restorative mm-hmm. operation?
0: Sure. Okay. Uh, it's eight days um, because, oh, well, it has to do with uh, laws of purity and impurity, basically. I mean, this is somewhat speculative, but I think it's, it's pretty clear if you read that ch- there, there are two passages in the, the Bible about circumcision, where it's spoken of as a requirement, um, two central passages. The first is Genesis 17, and the second one is in Leviticus. And the passage in Leviticus is talking about purity and impurity of a woman giving birth. And the, the amount of time it takes for a woman to sort of get over the impurity of her uh, menses in Jewish law is seven days. And so uh, it's seen that the a boy who's born into the world in, in his mother's blood is impure for seven days, and on the eighth day he, he, he can be circumcised. Um, restoration. Uh, I think it's really important. Um, I spent some time in the film talking about it because I think it speaks uh, to a lot of, elements of circumcision that, that uh, are not often spoken of, um, some percentage of the population are going to have such a fall, sharp, uh, sharp fall off in neurological functions, just a normal biological distribution, that when they get to a certain age, they're going to stop feeling anything in their penis. Um, and all of the re- uh, guys who I've spoken to who are restoring shared that story with me when I asked them, why did you start? They said, you know, when I was in my early 40s, I just couldn't feel anything through my penis anymore. Um, And that's important to know because you don't know who in the population is going to have that experience. And so every time you circumcise a baby, you're rolling the dice that they may be one of those people. That's important evidence. Um, And it's important evidence of harm of the kind that we think of usually when we talk about female genital cutting. In our culture, we believe that female genital cutting completely eliminates female sexual pleasure. Um, That's not entirely true. But um, the, the point I'm making is that there are some men for whom circumcision removes all sexual pleasure at a certain point in their life. And those are the guys who start restoring for the most part.
1: All right, thank you, final question.
4: I have more, just a, a couple of comments to make. Uh, I just wanna say first that was just a wonderful film. Oh, thank you. And films like that are just you know, one, one manifestation of the just in- inroads that are being made. Tim, you, alu- uh, you talked about cultural in- inroads being made, suggestions about um, getting correct information out there is another one, but what doesn't escape me is the fact that big business and money plays in all of this. I, you know, I've learned a lot about this subject, mostly, you know, thanks to Paul, but when I'm still reading information in the paper and articles that are propagating the idea that circumcision helps prevent AIDS and, and other articles that I know are just fraudulent information. I've got to wonder what's the motive behind these art- articles. And I think it's because we're also up against an industry, a money-making industry. And to me, that is going to be one of the biggest things that's going to get in the way of, of making positive change in this area. I know that Eli doesn't like to make that his focus, the money side of it, and I appreciate that and I respect that, but I just know from what I read in the paper, and I see this being propagated over and over and over again, you know, I'm not an idiot. I know that it all comes down to dollars.
0: Well, I, I, I just want to... I appreciate that there's a financial side to it, and I appreciate that there's, there are industries that profit from it. I, I do want to point out that if you can convince parents not to do it, it'll stop happening. It's not, there's no structure. I mean, there, you're, you're, what you're really fighting are psychological defense mechanisms and cultural inertia. Those are the real enemies here, because there's nothing um, stopping. If you can actually convince parents to not do this to their children, there's nothing that the industry can do to stop that. I mean, you can argue that there's some sort of uh, financial motivation behind, you know, I guess, uh, you know, people in the medical profession who want to continue practicing, but I I have to be honest, most of the doctors that I talk to don't really enjoy doing them, the ones who do them, and um, I I think uh, for the most part, and Tim brought this up too, there's a sort of the corporate speak that goes on around this from doctors is more like, um, you know, there's a demand from the client, so we're fulfilling the demand from the client. Well, you know, in any good corporate system, if you take away the demand from the client, the practice will go away. I, I honestly believe that, and I I do understand that it feels like all of the forces of capitalism are sort of, you know, stacked against, you know, but I, I, I think that... Um, that there's a, we have a tendency to overemphasize um, money and money motivations because of the culture that we live in. And I, I honestly, I'm very optimistic about um, the possibility of change. Um, and I think the best way to go about that is just to reach people.
2: And also, I think um, it takes pressure from all of us on the power structure, on the medical associations, particularly, to uphold the prime dictum of medicine, which is first, do no harm. And to have them take strong policy statements um, that educate their members about the function and benefits of the foreskin. Because even today in the United States, most medical students do not learn anything about the foreskin except it's what you cut off in a circumcision. And if doctors are not being taught this in medical school, they can't teach parents about what the value of the foreskin is. And then there's nothing to convince them not to do circumcision. So that has to happen, and I think they really have to take the lead of the Dutch Medical Association, which just uh, in September made a strong policy statement saying that circumcision of male children is a violation of human rights, and that active programs to deter communities needs to be put in place. And hopefully, they will set a precedent for other medical associations around the world to adopt these, but we can also do that from the bottom up and write letters to the Canadian Pediatric Society and others asking them for strong statements in support of children's rights. So for, for a matter <laughs> why I, still, I still read all these articles that are propagated in circumcision for all of
4: these supposed benefits that it has when I know they're not true. And I would say nine, out
2: of 10 articles that i come across, and I and I see them in the paper right there, that you probably do do, they're all co-perconcision, the, I have to make it to one that's not. It's their last uh, dying gasp, is from what I see. They In the beginning, when this issue was brought up, it was laughed off as a non-issue. And what we're finding now is they're like rats on a ship scrambling to justify this any way they can, because the financial motivation comes in, especially in the very litigious United States. Once you start seeing more and more lawsuits, and and cases like Paul's, where there's a disincentive to do circumcision because they face legal problems down the road, they're gonna be dropping the scalpels left and right.
6: Anyway, thank you very much, everyone. Thanks to our panel.
2: Ellie, Paul,
1: and Tim. <laughs> all right, that, that concludes our presentation for the evening. If you'd like to buy a DVD from, from Ellie, he's got them here for $20. And uh, if you'd like to get a t-shirt, talk to me. I don't have them with me, but I can hook you up later. And uh, thank you very, very much for coming out. It's been a wonderful evening. I think we've all learned a lot. And uh, thanks for coming. Please, uh, again, if, uh, if you can find it in your heart, please donate generously on your way out so we can cover our costs on this event. Thank you very much for coming.
0: That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.